Decisions, decisions, decisions. We make thousands of decisions every day. And even this morning, you probably made many decisions, perhaps what to wear, what you're going to do in the afternoon, perhaps what road to take. Uh, and for maybe those smaller decisions, you're not weighing out the pros and the cons. You know, if you're wearing flip-flops on a rainy day, eh, it's not a big deal. Uh, perhaps for bigger decisions, uh, perhaps you're thinking through a career change, uh, maybe relocating or going back to school, uh, then you might be thinking through what's the better decision. Uh, you might be thinking through what's the strengths and the weaknesses, the pros and the cons. You're comparing and contrasting. Uh, perhaps you're thinking about buying a house or starting a family. And again, with all these bigger decisions, you may be thinking through what are the strengths and weaknesses of both sides. And I hope this weighing out as you're making these decisions, you're going to pick the better or, or the stronger decision. And I hope that's going to be the case for all the decisions that you make. Uh, and in today's passage, you're going to see that same comparing, this weighing out. Uh, particularly, you're going to see in the Old Testament sacrifice, one option, and the other option as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 18. Uh, it can be found on page 1006 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big number is the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I think that's going to be helpful for you uh, as you follow along with me in your Bibles. So if you turn there, I'm going to give you some background on the book of Hebrews as you turn there. Uh, this epistle or letter, it takes in the form, not in the traditional sense. So if you're familiar with Paul or Peter, you're going to see kind of this similar uh, structure. You're going to see a greeting and an introduction of you know, who the, who's writing this letter. And typically in Paul, you're going to see, my name is Paul, and I'm going to uh, you know, tell you this is the letter that I'm going to give to you. Uh, however, Hebrews doesn't take that shape and form. Uh, if you will, it's more of a hybrid. It's a sermonic letter, if you will. Uh, and I encourage you to read Hebrews as a whole in one sitting. It's probably going to take you about 45 minutes to read uh, because, again, this is more of a sermonic letter uh, where it's kind of like a topical sermon uh, where there's passages that are being expounded uh, and applications are being made. Uh, and that's the form of Hebrews. And in very much sense today, you're going to hear a sermon within a sermon uh, in some sense. Um, and especially as I preach through Hebrews uh, 10, uh, not only this uh, today, but also in July, that, that would be a wonderful practice to meditate on Hebrews as a whole, uh, to read through it in one sitting. And again, it's going to take about 45 minutes to read through it all. Uh, and it's interesting that Hebrews that you don't really know who the human little a author is. It's unknown. Uh, but, but what we do know is that it's most likely written to a Jewish congregation, a Jewish Christian congregation to be specific. And we know this because much of the content of Hebrews is steeped in the Old Testament. Uh, you really need to know your Old Testament to know what's going on in Hebrews because the author is really expounding on the Old Testament, uh, particularly the priesthood, the Old Covenant, uh, the tabernacle, and all of these themes uh, that we find in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is connecting it to Jesus. And that's the important subject of, the, uh, of 
what Hebrews wants to talk about. It's Jesus Christ. The main thrust is the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels, over Moses, over the priesthood, over the covenant institution. And, he's, and the author is writing for the purpose of warning and encouraging these Christians to persevere, to put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And so with that background, uh, if you want to follow along with me, starting in chapter 10, verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now the main point of the passage and the main point of the sermon is the superiority of Christ's sacrifice to forgive sin. Uh, let me repeat that. The superiority of Christ's sacrifice to forgive sin. And we're going to observe this main point in three points. Uh, namely, forgiveness foreshadowed, forgiveness promised, and forgiveness accomplished. So let's look with me at the first point, forgiveness foreshadowed. Uh, notice in verse 1, this foreshadowing. If you follow along with me again, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Uh, let's pause there for a second. Uh, as good Bible readers, uh, we need to know what the four in verse one is referencing. Uh, what is that four in reference to? Uh, well, it's in reference to, most immediately, chapter 9. And chapter 9 is all about the law, particularly the Mosaic law, about the priesthood, about the sacrifice. 
And the author of Hebrews here is coming to the summation of his argument. He's saying that all the law, it's pointing, it's, it's just shadows to a better future reality. It's to the good things. Now, what are these good things? What are these shadows? Well, the shadows of these good things are pointers or they're mere signs to something greater, symbols as, as you were. And it's like shadows in the sun. So if you're outside on a bright sunny day um, and the sun is shining and you see the shadow of yourself, perhaps your hand, wherever your hand moves, the shadow moves. Now the shadow in and of itself, it's connected to the object, your hand. Now you take away your hand, you take away the shadow. So the shadow is only connected in and so far as the object. And that's what's happening with the law here. They point forward to what is to come. They're just symbols to the realities that they point to. Well, what exactly is being foreshadowed? Well, if you look at the context of Hebrews, we saw in Hebrews 4 that Joshua is bringing the people of God, Israel, to uh, the promised land to gain rest. Well, that rest was a pointer to an ultimate rest. Uh, Similarly, in uh, Hebrews 8, we also see this idea of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Those are just pointers to the New Covenant. Uh, And we see this all throughout Hebrews. But in this context, in Hebrews 10, we see what's being foreshadowed is the Old Testament sacrifice. And that foreshadows a better sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice in the Levitical law, in Leviticus, in in Exodus, that foreshadows a better sacrifice. Well, how do we know that these Old Testament sacrifices foreshadow this? Well, if you look with me, we're going to see the weakness and the futility of the Old Testament sacrifice. So again, we're just going to compare and contrast the Old Testament sacrifice with the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, So if you follow along with me, Uh, The first weakness, we see the Old Testament sacrifice in verse 1. It can never make perfect those who draw near. This Old Testament sacrificial system was never designed to make perfection. It was never designed to forgive sin completely. The second weakness, uh, we see this in verse 2 and verse 3. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So we see see here the second weakness of the Old Testament sacrifice. It's the reoccurring nature of these Old Testament sacrifices. The very fact that these sacrifices needed to be made every year. And then if you see in verse 11, every priest stands daily these sacrifices were being made again and again and again just to show that this Old Testament sacrifice, it's unsatisfactory, it's insufficient to cleanse sin. It's this reoccurring nature that shows its weakness. The third weakness of the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, we see this in verse 3 and verse 4, The Old Testament sacrifice is a reminder of remaining sin. And we see this in verse 3, right? In these sacrifices, the Old Testament Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, these Old Testament sacrifices, the very fact 
that every year that it needs to be made, it just goes to show that these Old Testament sacrifices were weak. And as they go every year to Jerusalem to offer these sacrifices, it's kind of like this regular reminder that sin is separating people from God. And it's this nauseating reminder of bloodshed, of animals being killed, so that sin would be taken care of. But again, these Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifices, they never accomplished final forgiveness of sin. They made the people of God ceremonially clean, uh, externally clean, but not from the heart, not from the inside. And so these sacrifices were in some function, they were just uh, revealers of sin. In some function, these sacrifices, they delayed the judgment to come a final punishment and act and judgment of sin. Uh, But these uh, little bulls and goats that were being sacrificed, they were kind of delaying of that judgment. And all to point forward to a better sacrifice. So the ultimate sacrifice were to point to a better sacrifice. Now I recognize that uh, everybody in this room, at least to my knowledge, are not Jewish. So we're probably not tempted to go back to this Old Testament Law or this Old Testament sacrifice system. However, I do wonder if as Christians, if we're tempted, just like these Jewish Christians, to maybe in principle to go back to some form of perhaps a work righteousness. Uh, Perhaps we're tempted to think that uh, because we read the Bible or we pray or our church attendance that we can earn favor with God. Maybe, Maybe we uphold, oh, we're a church member. So we, we should earn forgiveness with God. Uh, or, or perhaps maybe we are thinking, mm, you know what? Maybe if I sin, I need to balance that sin by doing one good thing. So it's kind of this balancing act. Perhaps we're tempted to think that, ooh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to just kind of equalize my sin and my good things. That way my sin is taken care of and it's forgiven. Uh, Well, friends, I I hope you start seeing that the futility of trying to cleanse sin on your own terms or going to this lesser sacrifice, they're not going to achieve atonement for sin. And an illustration I've used before, it's kind of like if we're trusting in the Old Testament sacrifice to forgive sin, it's like if we're trusting a bike to fly. Uh, The very design of the bicycle is not to fly. So if we're getting mad at the bike, Why are you not flying? Well, it makes sense because the design of the bike is actually to ride and to roll. It's not to fly. And similarly, the law, that's the function. It's not designed to cleanse sin. Or else these sacrifices, they wouldn't need to be made again if they did its function. Well, if final forgiveness can't be found in these Old Testament sacrifices and it can't be found in the law, well, and they actually just foreshadow a better sacrifice, or they foreshadow a forgiveness of sins that will occur, well, what hope do we have? Well, praise God, because God promises this forgiveness. And this is our second point, forgiveness promised. And we see these in uh, particularly verse 5 to 9 and 15 to 17. Uh, And if you want to look with me, starting with verse 5, consequently, or as a result, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, the author of Hebrews, he's quoting the Old Testament. And as we're reading our Bibles, I want to give you some tools uh, as you're reading your Bible. And some helpful tools here, especially when we see a New Testament passage being quoted. Um, A New Testament passage that's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, Whether that's a, a, a pure quotation, like the passage we see today, or an allusion an allusion with an A, not illusion with an I, but uh, what this text is alluding to. And if, you write, take, if you're taking notes, if you want to write these questions down, uh, these are some helpful tools and questions to ask as you're reading your Bibles. Uh, first, what passage is being quoted or alluded to? Uh, what is the main point of the passage in its original context? And then finally, a third question, what is the purpose of this quotation, or uh, better yet, to what end is the author quoting this passage? And we're actually going to go through these questions because we're going to see that forgiveness is promised from this passage. Uh, So uh, let's start with the first question. What passage is being uh, quoted? And if you have uh, most of your Bibles, they should have a footnote. And it should be on verse 5, and there's a little A, and it should say Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. Uh, You don't have to turn there with me, uh, but that is what is being quoted. And what's the main point of that passage in the original context? Well, this is a psalm, Psalm 40. It's written by King David. This is the David that's referenced as the man after God's own heart. This is the David that God has covenanted with him in 2 Samuel 7, that God will make a dynasty or a kingdom through David, through King David. And so this David, he's writing this psalm, Psalm 40, and he's writing, praising God that he is the deliverer and asking God to to, to deliver him, to rescue him, to save him. And while what purpose is the author of Hebrews quoting this psalm? It's kind of an interesting psalm, right? Well, you might be, as I was, as I was preparing this, a little bit confused here. Um, In verse 5, you see these sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is David saying this. And yet, you're confused because wasn't it God's idea to command these sacrifices in Leviticus and in Exodus? So, God, how, how is it that in Exodus you're desiring these sacrifices and all of a sudden with David, you, you don't desire these sacrifices anymore? Is God fickle? Is God just going back on what he's saying? No, he is not. And how do we know this? Well, we have to remember uh, the historical, uh, the redemptive history or the history of redemption. We have to remember the redemptive history. And what do I mean by that? Well, we have to remember what's going on with the sacrificial system that's being placed in Exodus and Leviticus. Well, the whole point of the sacrificial system and the law, it's preceded by 
God's covenant love and faithfulness, particularly that God saved Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, Israel is to obey by obeying the law. So it was never this sacrificial system that earned God's favor. It was always God saved them, and then they respond in the sacrificial system, in the law, in obedience. That was always the order of how they were to respond. So I want to be extra clear on this point because I think the temptation is to think that, oh, the law is evil or bad, and so now the gospel is good. And I want to be very clear that, no, 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 the law is good. Why? Because God is the lawgiver. He is the good king. And 1 Timothy 1.8, actually, Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Uh, now, over time in the history of Israel, we started seeing this twisting of that order. We start seeing Israel, rather than recognizing that God is the Savior and they respond in obedience, they saw these sacrifices of these bulls and these goats and these lambs as a means of which of license to sin. It's kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm going to offer these sacrifices and I'm good. So I can kind of do whatever I want. And, and that's the twisting that David in this psalm is addressing. That David in Psalm 40 is saying, well, hold up, hold up. The whole point of the sacrificial system is not kind of this uh, way that I can kind of get away with my sin. No, 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 no. The whole point is that we are to give ourselves to God, give our hearts to God. And David is saying, God doesn't care about these ritualistic sacrifice or these ceremonial sacrifice or kind of this doing these offerings for the sake of doing them. But he cares about this heart obedience that stems from the heart. And, and if you see there with me these, uh, the commentary that all, the author of Hebrews is saying, you have neither, in verse 8, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. Those are basically the categories of all of the offerings that were in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. Uh, so basically, uh, in David, he's summarizing that the sacrificial system in all of its component, God doesn't care about that in a ceremonial sense, he cares about the people of God trusting in God. And here, what's being promised is this first sacrificial system is going to be abolished. And David says, I'm going to obey your will. I will obey. What's written of me in the scroll of the book, the law, I'm going to obey. And so, so, David is wanting to recover this order of God saving, and therefore we're responding in obedience. And David is saying, this Old Testament sacrifice, the promise is that there will be a better sacrifice. There will be a future sacrifice that will go against what the Old Testament sacrifice will point towards. So not only is the author of Hebrews showing from Psalm 40 that final forgiveness is promised, but we also see another Old Testament passage in verse 15. Uh, so if you follow along with me, in verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
so again, as good Bible readers, we have those three questions, helpful tools. Uh, let's go through it again. What passage is being quoted? And again, if you see your footnotes there, it's Jeremiah 31. Uh, it's actually the passage that David read for us in the scripture reading this morning. Uh, and actually, I invite you to turn there in Jeremiah 31 because th- this is one of those amazing passages that describe the new covenant. So if you want to turn there with me, Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a, a, pro- a prophetic literature. Jeremiah is the prophet. And the main point there, if you are there with me, the main point of this passage in Jeremiah 31 is that the prophet is promising a new covenant that will wipe away all sin. A new covenant that all of the people of God will know him spiritually. A, a new covenant where God will be their God and his people will be his people. Uh, so if you're there with me in Jeremiah 31, I, I want us to read from 31. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are, I believe, five explicit references to the new covenant. This is one of them in Jeremiah 31. So this is a, a huge thing because this new covenant, it impl- it, the implications is for all Christians even to this today. Uh, so if you follow along with me, Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 31 as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so we see in Jeremiah this promise of forgiveness of sin in Jeremiah that one day this promise will be fulfilled. It's a promise that is basically saying that the author of Hebrews is connecting that the prophets, that they're promising final forgiveness that will one day be accomplished. And I hope you're starting to notice that the author of Hebrews, he's connecting in verse 1 to 4 in Hebrews with the law, and then David with the psalm, And then Jeremiah with the prophets that all of the Old Testament, those are the major categories of the Old Testament, they are pointing forward to a better sacrifice. And so I hope you're seeing that this this Savior, this sacrifice in the new covenant that's being promised, we're seeing that this will be uh, fulfilled, this will be enacted or inaugurated through sacrifice. It's through an offering that's being made. All the blessings that will come with the new covenant will be made through sacrifice, a better sacrifice. Well, church, I hope you notice that these promises, they're actually for us. They're not for just merely the context of these Old Testament people or it's not just to the context of these early church with the Hebrews. But this is for us. Uh, Look with me again in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
all of Scripture, all of it is helpful for us, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. It will make us wise for salvation. Even the Old Testament passages. Why? Because they point forward to a greater Savior. And the Word of God is to strengthen us to trust in Christ. I wonder if we have uh, difficulty reading the Old Testament. Uh, perhaps, we find it, uh, perhaps we find it boring or not applicable, or we just don't understand all these kings and what's going on with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Like, they all sound the same. And perhaps we just have difficulty with the Old Testament. Uh, but brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I encourage you that these promises of old are witnesses for us. They're for us to hold, to lay hold of, to grab, to encourage us, to meditate on deeply. So I encourage you, as you guys are studying the word, hold on to those promises because they are witnesses for us, for our sanctification, for our trust in the Lord. Now, if you recognize all these promises, uh, they're not promising a perfect family with obedient children. They're not promising perfect health. They're not promising all the riches of the world. They're not promising a Pinterest wedding. They're not promising the things that we desire or the things of the world. But clearly God has promised what we ought to think are important. Why? Because God says it's important. And clearly in this promise in Jeremiah 31, we see that God promises that he will remember sin no more. I hope you sit on that promise uh, throughout this week that he will remember our sin no more, wiped clean. And this is a promise that he made in the Old Testament. So I hope we start seeing in, in, in our first point the weakness of the law to forgive sin and it foreshadows a better sacrifice. We see in our second point that God is promising a better sacrifice, that forgiveness will be attained. And then finally, we see the fulfillment or the accomplishment of this forgiveness. And this is our third point, forgiveness accomplished. Forgiveness accomplished. Well, who accomplishes this forgiveness? Look with me at verse 10, starting with verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly for the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So who accomplishes this forgiveness? Final forgiveness of sin is accomplished by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, the Son of God. It's the Christ who is the real substance that the law foreshadows. He is the servant king in the line of King David. This is the Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ who will fulfill Psalm 40 who will obey God perfectly. This is the Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant as promised in Jeremiah 31. He is the fulfillment of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. 
And if you look at the entire book of Hebrews, it's all about Jesus, the Son, the one who accomplishes forgiveness of sins. And how does he do this? Notice with me, again, in verse 10, it's by the body of Jesus Christ. It's an offering. And notice the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making. The priest, in verse 11, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly these sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But notice what Jesus, the greater high priest, does. He offered for all time a single one, singular, sacrifice for sins. Once for all. That's the solution to the problem of sin, that God in His holiness and His righteousness and His justice, He creates all things in right relationship with Him, the good King. But we, as humans, we sinned against God. We rebelled against God. Now the punishment of that sin and rebellion is punishment in hell. It's eternal condemnation in hell. That's the result of sin. So now I hope you're seeing that we need some atonement to be made. We need justice to be made. So God cannot just sweep that sin under the rug and just say, oh, I didn't see it. But he needs to carry out his sentence because God is just. And that's the sentence for the crime of sin. But out of God's great mercy, his love, he sends his son, Jesus, to accomplish this forgiveness. He is perfection coming to the imperfect so that the imperfect would be perfect. He does this, how? He does this by dying on the cross as a sacrifice. He dies on the cross to forgive sin, to justify his people. But he doesn't lay there dead. Three days later, he rises from the dead to show that that sacrifice has been paid in full. Final forgiveness paid in full. No more offering needing to be made. No more sacrifice needing to be made because Christ did the once and for all sacrifice. It's finished. It's done. And what does he do? He doesn't stand. He sits at the right hand of God. And that sitting at the right hand of God, it's basically what many theologians have said is the session. And what that means is it's kind of like the finished work. And we sit down, we rest. Just as God has created in six days in Genesis, and he rested. He doesn't need to rest because he's not physically tired. But it's to say that this work is done. It's good. And same thing with Jesus' death on the cross. This work, this sacrifice is good. It's done. Now, if you're here and you do not trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, Christ is calling you to repent and believe, to to, to trust in this sacrifice on the cross. He's calling you to not work for the forgiveness of sins, which you could never attain, but to trust, to rest in this sacrifice that Christ has done. He's calling you to repent and believe. And if you want to explore Christianity, uh, talk to the friend who brought you here. 
uh, or to the family member that brought you here, uh, talk to myself after the service or talk to any of the elders here. Uh, we'll be more than happy to explore Christianity with you, to explore the gospel with you more. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I offer you this exhortation. Fellow Christian, rest in the person and finished work of Christ. Rest in this sacrifice. Meditate it on a daily but this is the crux. This is the center of Christianity. This is the heart of the gospel. Meditate on this sacrifice regularly. Find your security and safety and comfort in the gospel. I hope this would be a meditation that we would have for the rest of our lives. And we know this in Revelation that we continually meditate on Jesus the Lamb who sacrifices Himself for the world. And that we'll sing of this eternally in Revelation. And I hope we can even practice that daily, even now, to meditate on the sacrificial Lamb, Jesus. Well, the question still remains, how are we forgiven completely, but yet we still sin? How can this be? And I know for all of us, and myself included, that we feel this tension We feel this tension of being seen as perfect in the eyes of God, but yet we still sin. We still have this indwelling sin. Well, the answer to that is found in verse 14. Follow with me in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I hope you caught that. We are being sanctified. So we're in this process of growing in holiness. This is what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive in the sense that we're gro- it's ongoing. We're growing in holiness. We're growing more into the image of Christ. But also look with me at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. And it's through an offering, through the offering. I hope you see it's been sanctified, meaning it's once and for all done. We've been set apart. We've been devoted to God. It's been done. But we also see this progressive. And so that's what we call positional. So verse 10, it's positional sanctification in the sense that it's already been purchased. It's already been done. Now we live in this tension of the already but not yet. So this is the... Uh, tension of the already but not yet. We already are perfect in Christ Jesus, but yet not perfect now. We will one day be. Throughout the New Testament, this concept has been there um, all throughout the Bible. We see that God defeats sin, but yet we see in uh, verse 13 that we're waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. So, Enemy has been defeated, but there will be an ultimate sense that the enemy will be ultimately defeated. Not right now, but in the future. So it's this already, but not yet. Uh, we see this again in Paul, that Paul himself is saying, uh, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Because it's in the right now that we're progressively growing in holiness. But we already have been purchased by Christ. Uh, And this already but not yet tension, that's where we live right now. We have been already been sanctified, purchased by Christ's blood, but we are growing in holiness. Now, church, this is a a call for us 
that we are in the process of becoming more holy, but we're not there yet. And when we sin, I know for some of us, our temptation is to think, oh, I got to fix ourselves, fix myself up before I go to church. Or I got to fix myself up before I tell somebody. Uh, but, but friends, this is a call actually to draw near to God because we have been already forgiven in Christ. Th- this is actually God's plan of growing in holiness. Uh, did you see that? For all time, those. And then in verse 10, we have been sanctified. There, there's just a corporate aspect to it. So uh, if you have, if a fellow Christian, if you have not joined the church, this is a, a call for us that your personal holiness is actually in the means of a corporate body. That you join the church and you grow holy together. That's actually the call of the New Testament. That we grow holy more into the likeness of Christ as a corporate entity. We iron sharpening iron. We confess sin, pointing out sin to one another, not out of judgmentalism or, you know, to get back at somebody, but out of recognizing that we are not perfect and that we need others to, to help us grow in holiness. So, brothers and sisters of Christ, if you have not joined the church, this is an opportunity for you to join a gospel-preaching church. Uh, But members of First Baptist, this is an opportunity for us to uphold Christ and His sacrifice in confessing sin and growing in holiness, recognizing that we are just underneath the blood of Jesus Christ and washed clean. And I hope this would be a way that we can just point each other to the sacrifice of Jesus because it is Him and Him alone that all of our sin has been forgiven. This is the superiority of Christ's sacrifice to forgive sin. We saw the forgiveness that was foreshadowed in the law, pointing to the better sacrifice in Christ. We saw forgiveness promised in the Psalms with David, that God cares about obedience from the heart, ultimately from a sacrifice that will bring that about. And we also see in Jeremiah, in the prophets, that it was promised that a new covenant will be made and it's through a sacrifice. And then finally, Jesus himself, he accomplishes this forgiveness of sin in his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, With that, I hope we go forth today resting in this ultimate sacrifice that was done once and for all by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, With that, let me close us in a word of prayer. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we praise you as the Almighty, the God who is King, who rules and reigns in accordance with your righteousness. We confess the ways that we sin against you, O Lord. We, we trust ourselves. We trust our own works. But we thank you that our sin problem, past, present, and future, has been cleansed by the work of Christ. Help us, O God, to rest in this sacrifice. Help us, O God, to trust in you. And help us to live in light of Jesus every single day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.